It's the Let's Go Eat Show, and here they are, two powerhouses in the Democratic Party in the state of Utah, and man, are they going at it today. It's Sim Gill. Uh, he's the Salt Lake County District Attorney, and it's Jim DeBacchus, State Senator Jim DeBacchus. And I'm telling you, now, Jim DeBacchus, when you're at a table with Jim DeBacchus, he waves his arms around, and he, fl- and he, whoa. You need and, to give him a wide berth. Yeah. That's right, because I'm afraid that he's going to knock stuff off the table, but he never does. Picture Lewis Black. And Sim Gill, Sim Gill is more contained, but he he looks straight ahead for the most part. And he it's like he's focusing on a point in the distance, and he starts going, and he, he just, he has, he has the most focused conversation, I think, of, of anybody I've ever met. So, we're talking democratic politics both nationally and locally, on this edition of the Let's Go Eat show. We've never done an episode like this it's, before. I uh, I kind of was hoping they'd give they'd make my heart feel better. No. But they made me smarter. Uh, specifically the part, we start out talking national politics. I kind of wanted to do it the other way around. Uh, but we started out with national politics, uh, the Trump administration and what that's going to bring. It's, it's kind of depressing. You'll see what I mean. Here it is. The Let's Go Eat Show, Jim DeBacchus, Sim Gill. Enjoy. I, it, we're, we're talking uh, politics with uh, Sim and Jim. Uh, <laughs> Jim DeBacchus and Sim Gill are uh, our friends here, our Democratic friends, our, our, our relatively liberal friends here. Uh, and uh, the, the elections are over, uh, except LeVar Christensen, maybe won by three votes. Yeah. Um, but at any, any rate, I don't know where we want to start. Uh, you guys seem re- really re- relatively upbeat, uh, given the fact that uh, uh, Democrats uh, nationally, uh, well, we kind of got our asses kicked. Uh, got trounced, I think, yeah. is the word you're looking for. Yeah, co- real close to the mic. Yeah, so. yeah, nope, right. Uh, and uh, uh, here in Utah, again. 166,000 voted, I believe, for uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, which I think uh, really is a, you know, I think it raises a very lot of interesting questions for us collectively. You know, does morality matter? If we say we are a state that believes in moral issues, uh, Apparently do, not. you know, do ethics matter? If we talk about conflicts of interest, Guess not. Uh, you know, uh, does message, ma- oh. you know, truth matter? If okay. we're talking about. Okay, let's start there then. How does a guy like, and Dylan, would you turn up my headphones just a little bit, please? Uh, uh, here on the Let's Go Eat show, we're talking, uh, we're at 50 West. Now, uh, okay, so, uh, and you could turn them down now just a little tiny bit if you would. Uh, so how does a guy like, I see in the paper yesterday or today, Sean Reyes, the Attorney General, who voted for Donald Trump and was a Trump supporter and backer, and then he's commenting on uh, Donald Trump's uh, People who Donald Trump is considering for his cabinet saying, well, you know, if we wanted to put Muslims, register Muslims coming into this country, we could probably do it because there's precedent because we put Japanese people into internment camps during World War II. There's a, there is a, there's a precedent. There's a legal Histori- precedent, historically legal precedent uh, yeah. for that. First of all, that sounds like bullshit to me. But, but second of all, Sean Reyes, who is, now Sean Reyes says, I have Japanese ancestry and some of my family and friends were in those camps and yet he still can support Donald Trump. 
How in the world can people compartmentalize things like that? Well, I think there's a level of intellectual contortionism going on here, intellectual gymnastics that are going on. I, I, I think that either as a matter of uh, ideals, we believe that we don't uh, segregate people based on race, based on their ethnicity, based on their religion, and that we have certain ideals in the constitutional framework of government, or we don't. They, these ideals are not ideals that were, that are you know uh, relative relative in the sense that we say, well, if it suits our purpose, we go ahead and do it. If history teaches us one thing, that Japanese experience, that Japanese internment was a stain on our moral status as a country, as a free nation. This is something that we were embarrassed about and we're still embarrassed about. And for us to say somehow that we can rationalize this at this stage, uh, I think it just uh, shows the level of moral vacuum that we've created uh, thus far in our political dialogue. But as an attorney, yeah. as an attorney, of which, Sim Gill, yeah. you certainly yeah. are an attorney. Certainly. Is there legal precedent look uh, and under the emergency powers i guess you could probably do an executive could order argue uh, could uh, argue it in a state of war i guess you could do it but uh, do, does the constitution allow us to do this hopefully we, uh, we we will have a lot of people who will object to that kind of uh, internment process uh, without just cause, and I can't think of any cause right now which says that by virtue of belonging to a group, you are automatically suspect. That speaks to the basis level of our uh, of our collective democracy and our constitutional rule of law. This is where the legislative branch of government, Jim DeBacchus being a legislator, would have to step in, would have to do something about this. Uh, Mr. DeBacchus, a comment on this. I say... Bring back Swallow and Shirtlift. <laughs> really, you knew where they stood. Of all of the state officials all across this state, I am continually and constantly most depressed and discouraged by Sean Reyes, who has put his own blinding ambition ahead of a legal sense as well as justice and fairness. He wants to be a U.S. senator. He wants to be governor. You sit down with him. He's a reasonable, normal guy. He's a, one, he's not, he's a lovely well, guy. Well, let me, let me but, put it. But let yeah, me just no, finish. Right, please. But when it came to taking, taking away children... From gay parents, Sean Reyes was in the battle. He was in the fight. He was there with amicus briefs. When it comes to taking and uh, our dreamer children. The uh, uh, ch children of uh, immigrants who were born here in the country for the most part. Uh, right, uh, whose parents illegal, illegally illegal. brought yeah. them in. The president signed a, an order giving these Utah kids the right to stay in Utah. They've been here virtually their whole life. They've grown up. They've gone there. There was Sean Reyes. He couldn't wait to sign on. Mm -hmm. And he's always touting his ethnic minorities, and there seems to be a lot of them, and God bless him. But there he was. How can he look justice in the eye? How can he look at these Utah children? How can he look at these gay couples that have children and now he's talking about, and was actually a surrogate for Donald Trump no. in Nevada at least and maybe other places, and giving the stump speech saying, yes, we may need 
to do some of these things with Muslims. He ought to be ashamed of well, himself. Look, look, here's the thing. Uh, you know, Sean's a good guy. I, I, I deal with him. He's a good guy. I think he means well. But I think there is a responsibility when we come from a rule of law and leadership positions. We got elected to these positions because we are voted into these positions. And we have a legal responsibility, a moral responsibility, and an ethical responsibility not to join the chorus of voices that say, let's lock everybody up. I think the responsibility of an independent elected is to lend a voice of rational, reflective, cautious approach, because this is a slippery slope when it comes to constitutional law. And what we don't want to do is to be judged by history again in a rush for consensus, and sometimes the consensus is not right. That's why we have a constitutional democracy. And our elected leadership is really about leading. It is about saying, and, I, and I've said this before, the promise of the American democracy is that those that are, did not vote for me, those that did, did not support me, after the election, I walk up to them and say, listen, you are part of my political concern, and the law protects you just as it protects everybody else, and I will do everything in my part, in my power, to make you part of the political concern and political conversation. I think we need to step back, and the election is over, and if Mr. Trump played these cards to get the rhetoric going, then he's accomplished that. It will be a double sin for us to simply rush to that judgment and compromise our constitutional values. And I don't think anybody who was thinking about this would do that. And if there is a slippery slope and we are doing that, then shame on all of us, whether we're Republican, Democrat, Independent, uh, that we don't say that the rule of law and we have a, don't have the moral courage to speak up, and that's what we need to do. So what do you think, uh, if, if in fact Donald Trump did all of this, or, or most of it, Simply because he's he's very clever, and he is he's clever. He's a good showman. If he did all of this because he's a clever showman and 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 knew how to manipulate uh, the the scene to to get elected, and he doesn't, you know, he says what's expedient, uh, and he that's the reason he did it. So so how do we judge him that way? He had he had a meeting with the New York Times editorial board finally in the so he summoned the TV people to his, uh, his to Trump Tower and said. You will come and speak to me, and it will be off the record. And the TV people, being the little cowards, news cowards that they were, said, okay, okay, we'll come and talk to you off the record. And then he said to the New York Times, I want to speak to you, and it has to be off the record. And the New York Times said, no, we won't speak to you off the record, and you have to come and see us. And he said he didn't want to do that at first, but then he finally decided, okay, I'll go talk to the New York Times on the record. And he said, well, some of the things I said during the campaign, I don't I'm, he he walked some of the stuff back. Climate change, you know, we do want clean water and we do want clean air. And I'm not, you know, maybe I will stay with the climate accords. And and you know that thing about the Muslims, maybe I, I didn't really mean all that. And Hillary Clinton, yeah. we're not. so if, if he's just said those things to be expedient, how do we judge him? Well, well first of all, let's, I think the first part of the reevaluation here is for us to think of ourselves as an electorate as a body of citizens, and we have to ask ourselves, how did we allow this to happen? Look, let, 
we cannot overlook a fundamental point here. The fundamental point is uh, it wasn't like the media came out and supported Donald Trump when he was running. It was not like he got lots of money to support him when he ran his campaign. It's not like he got political moguls to back him up. But one thing that Donald Trump did have, which we did not have, and we have to acknowledge this as painful as it may be, he had a message. He spoke to a group of people who were feeling raw, and he reached out to them. Now, did he say something that was expedient to get them excited, to get them to the uh, uh, polls? Yes, he did. And uh, he exploited the process that was uh, made available to him. Now, the proof is going to be in the pudding as we go forward. It's one thing to get elected. It's another thing to govern. And the checks and balances that ensure our democracy have to be fully vigilant. So, for example, it is fair to say that uh, when somebody like the alt-right comes up and have their their, uh, convention and they say, hail Trump, hail our people, hail victory, and they are incorporating him into that conversation, he has a moral responsibility and leadership to say, I don't espouse to that, and they do not speak for me, and they do not speak for Americans. When there are conflicts of interest from his business family holdings, we have an obligation to say, this is not how our presidents govern, and we're not going to let you get by this, and need to call him on that. When he is out there censoring the press, and he's saying that uh, he's uh, going to speak against First Amendment uh, uh, rights and First Amendment issues, and then when people are out there, which we celebrate as a country, and calls those protesters, which were within their rights to say that, and we don't uh, check him on that, then we are going to be complicit like we were through the election, through the governance phase of this uh, relationship. So this second phase is where people can no longer be uh, bystanders. You have to get into the game, and you cannot uh, compromise on your morality or on your ideals. If that happens, then we will have compounded the original sin with a secondary sin, and we will not be forgiven for that. Mr. DeBacchus. Look, respect in America is earned. It's not given. And... What people are saying, including a lot of Trump supporters, is don't believe what he said when he was on the campaign. The best thing America can hope for is Donald Trump didn't mean what he said, that he made it all up. What kind of a horseshit situation is that for a country to have? That at the best scenario, they elected somebody that was lying as he was running the campaign. Yeah, many voters did say that. Oh, I don't think he's really And that's do the that. great hope of America that Donald Trump was lying, that he wasn't telling the truth. Give me a break. Right. I'm not I'm not ready to give respect. Don't. I'm ready to listen and see if Donald Trump earns that respect and I hope that's the the way that the American people uh, view this election. You know, it's it's uh, uh, people are hesitant to pull the Nazi card. Yeah. I mean, they really, because it puts an end to conversations, and it's and it's stupid to do it in a lot of cases. But I, I keep, but there are these historical parallels, and I think you know the people in in Germany, uh, you know, said, you know, we just it was want, a lawful election. We just want to. It was a lawful election. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Adolf Hitler uh, in a lawful election beat uh, Hindenburg. Yeah. Uh, President Hindenburg and, and kicked him out of office. And, you know, the people of Germany, they just wanted to feel proud about their country again. The, co- the economy was in a shambles. They wanted to feel proud of their country. They wanted their trains to run on time. They didn't, they didn't want to get into a global war. They didn't want uh, 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 Jews to be rounded up and have stars put on. Most of them didn't. That, that's not, that was not their aim. They just wanted to feel good about their country, and they just wanted, you know. So there are historic 
historical par- parallels there, and, and it kind of that's what worries me. It, it, the erosion of our ideals occurs incrementally. Very rarely does it occur as some grand gesture. No. Nobody ever who was a, a, a dictator or in any country ever came up and said, elect me dictator because I'm going to do bad things to you. Yeah. They are always couched under the terms of the most benign, uh, generous uh, ideology. So, yes, it comes in sheep's clothing, but it happens incrementally. But it is a seduction to which citizens uh, uh, comply to, and then eventually, it, it, the, once you go over the edge, you get to a critical mass, and then all of a sudden, everybody gets up and says, well, how in the hell did this happen? How did we get into this situation? And I guess the point is, we are on the cusp of sliding back if we are not vigilant as citizens. It is citizens who put him in power, and it is citizens who have to speak up. And the vacuum that you're talking about, when we look at historically, whether you're talking about Germany or any other country, is when good men and women of moral conscience did not speak up when they knew what was being said in front of them was untrue and unjust and a violation of people's uh, dignity and integrity, then they prostituted themselves for this situation to happen. So the courage now of American democracy is Republicans, Democrats, and everybody else, every citizen, to demand and speak up when the truth or injustice is being said. That is really going to be the next part of this conversation. Can I, can I ask you both to sort of predict this? We'll start with you, Mr. DeBacchus, State Senator Jim DeBacchus. Um, the, the weight of the federal bureaucracy is pretty awesome, <laughs> Uh, these are the unelected people who work in Washington and uh, have worked in Washington and continue to work in Washington. Uh, there are, for instance, Donald Trump has nominated uh, Jeff Sessions to be the um, attorney general. Attorney general. Thank you, Mr. <laughs> attorney general or city prosecutor, someday attorney general, perhaps. Um, so he's, so the chief law enforcement officer yes. of, of the land, as Mr. Gill is yeah. the chief law enforcement officer of our county. Uh, and Jeff Sessions has a history uh, of racism and, uh, you know, voting against uh, uh, voter rights laws in, in the South and <clears throat> calling people boy and that sort of thing. There, there is that history there. Uh, and other bad things can say, be said about Senator Keep Sessions. Keep in mind, he was denied the federal judgeship by a Republican-controlled right. Senate because mm. these issues came out at that time. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't like some partisan issue. This mm. was a part of a uh, uh, open dialogue, mm-hmm. which uh, they said, this is unacceptable. So, uh, so, so he's going to have to go through confirmation. Will he make it through confirmation? And if he does make it through confirmation, can he be effective because he will have that weight of that federal bureaucracy with lots and lots and lots of good lawyers who presumably have consciences working in his department who will go you know who will say come on we're not gonna we can't do that we're not gonna do what the the kinds of things you're directing here it's it's patently awful and we won't do it they will do it He's, he's going to be confirmed. Is, this is the, the he's going to be confirmed. Absolutely. Look what happened in Utah. You had Chris Stewart, the congressman, say Donald Trump is Mussolini, and then a month or two later, he endorsed embrace Mussolini. Are most of the states Republicans jumped on the bandwagon? 
with a couple of except one exception. Is the Spencer only one Cox. I can think is Spencer Cox is the only one who who, didn't. Show, who showed incredible moral courage, by the way. And but what Sim said is exactly right. It is a distinct pattern in history how these things happen. Sometimes they win by a minority of the votes, and then the the bandwagon of political opportunists jump on board and say, yeah, 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 and you get... That's why I'm so angry at Sean Reyes. Um, I expected more out of him by the rule of law. Remember, the Japanese internment was legal. The Komatsu case, the United States Supreme Court said, yep, it's legal. If you look at Vladimir Putin or you go back and look, here's the pattern to be most afraid of. It's national security. It is a moment when something blows up or some kind of terrorist activity. Mm-hmm. And that very strong person comes and says, I have to take command. I have to do this to save the country. In 1999, in Putin's Russia, bombs went off and killed hundreds of people in apartment buildings. And he came out strongly and... And as the brand new prime minister that no one had ever heard of and came out as law enforcement and began terrific atrocities against the people of Chechnya, who allegedly were the terrorists, the end result of that was a complete end of democracy's small experiment in Russia. And it's almost always done under the guise of, I got to protect you, these have happened. Now, in Putin's case, as often happens, the terrorist activities actually come from those in power, so they have the pretext to go do whatever they want. If if we go the next step in erosion of American powers, it will be because of this great terrorist threat, and I need to take command of this or that. Be careful of that. Be so, careful of you that. Know, I, I agree with what uh, Jim's saying. Look, sometimes in history, what may be legal is not always morally right. Sovereignty, sovereign powers, elected powers making the laws, make the laws, but that does not necessarily mean that they can't be unconstitutional as we understand them or they can be in violation of people's dignity and their uh, sort of rights as you have. Remember, during the Nuremberg trials, people's defense was we were just following orders. They were legally uh, enacted orders. And so we need to be careful of what starts out under the guise of legitimacy may historically and constitutionally may be upon reflection something that may be morally wrong. And that's a really fascinating part of our American democracy. That's where what is unique about American democracy is that every single one of us cannot be passive participants, but we have to abdicate that responsibility, that moral high ground to other folks. It always starts under the legitimization of public institutions. It starts out with the changes in having to wear the, the sign, the registry. You have to go register. You have to then be monitored. Then you have to explain your travels. Where the start uh, uh, yeah, yeah, May I see your papers? Papers, yeah, yeah, yeah. papers, papers, please. Papers, please, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so 
this is not something new. This is something we're aware of. And what we've said to the rest of the world is that uh, this is not how our political process is. If you want to know what is really troubling to me, do I think Donald Trump may seem uh, some sense here and we and he's going to be our president and, he is, and we're going to see what happens. But I'll tell you what's frightening for me is when you take the institutional apparatus, which is legitimate government structure that we have, and then you bring, bring in party purists like Mr. Bannon, who was from the Breitbart group, and they alt-right reality, and you will bring these people in as party purists who become your uh, policy analysts, and they're the conscious of the, of the president because they're advising him. That is where you conflate ideology with institutional independence, and when you blur those lines, that is a recipe for mischief historically. So I, I just want to go back to this idea, though, that there are good solid people working in that bureaucracy but they can't they can't do anything they pride themselves on not becoming political becoming political and and in, in not making the policy their job as professionals whether it's the just department of justice or whatever i'll tell you something that scares the poop out of me i guess this is a podcast i can say shit yeah you can since the last election there have always been in the White House, go back to Nixon, go back to LBJ, who in so many ways was a, a great man, but in so many ways was devious yeah. and manipulative. Oh, yes. There is in this great power the ability to do great damage. We, we've had these checks and balances over the years, but in the furor of the attacks on New York... We've created in our own state, the south end of the valley, the a sieve yeah. that has a record of every email, every text message, at least every phone call, number called, and perhaps even yeah. listening devices. I mean, imagine the political potential of Karl Rove or James Carville or Mr. Breitbart in that Oval Office, who suddenly now, through a couple of phone calls, can say, I want the dossier of every phone call and every location that Senator XYZ or Senator XYZ's uh, competitor has been taking. Who's going to stop that? Who's going to stop it? I'm afraid nobody is going to stop it. And that scares me. These are the seeds of the republic that we're messing around with. And I have thought when we so willfully turned over that kind of information and said, you know what, government, we trust you, it's okay, in my mind it always came down, not to the president, but to that beady-eyed politician. And they're in Obama's White House. I mean, they're everywhere. That's what their job is. Mm-hmm. Whenever has that kind of potential power been at stake and 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 people not gone and tapped that well. It's it's part of human nature. It's going to happen. I'm nervous about it. It's something we ought to to destroy. It's, it's, it's what Edward Snowden yeah. has has, well, has tried to call attention to. Well, our safeguard, our safety net, and, and let me sort of echo what Jim's saying from a different perspective. 
We had a notion of our moral political compass uh, before this election. We had a notion of what constituted political normalcy in terms of our sociological checks and balances, right? We said that, uh, you remember, and now this seems almost laughable, that remember George Bush Jr., was terrified that information about him getting drunk as a fraternity boy was going to come out and that he was going to be disqualified to run for the president of the United States. That almost seems passe compared to the public admissions, the up, the topsy-turvy of our moral political compass that's been uh, uh, turned upside down. And the takeaway from this, which is frightening to me, which is the slippery slope, is that we no longer have the idea that rules in any sense of normal sociological sense apply to us. Since all rules, all bets are off, that means that anything is possible and anything can be rationalized. If It sort of becomes sort of the ends justify the means mindset of our political new reality. And that to me is a very frightening prospect because we used to hold together as a nation and say there are certain things you just don't do. And what this last elections told us is, and what Mr. Trump has said, and in essence what he's saying even in the light of the the the, the challenges, the conflict of interest that we're talking about from his business holdings itself is that these rules no longer apply to me and you don't have a right to ask me and you don't have a right to demand me and since I have a mandate, that means that, uh, that you agree with me and that's the kind of slippery slope that we go down. Uh, and so we don't have that safety net anymore and I think that's what has most people frightened. Well, apparently he's, he's legally correct that the, there is not the same constraints on a, on a president uh, in terms of conflict of interest. That's uh, right. Uh, that, that there is on Congress. Congress, they have they do they have to divest themselves of business interests and put things in blind trust. There's no such. I guess there is. I was reading today. There's no such. There aren't. But when his daughter sits I mean, in through ethically, a, well, yeah, you should probably do. So it, so so in essence, if you're if you have your personal family members sitting through meetings with heads of state. And you have business interests uh, which can have collateral consequences of the decisions that they make, and they want to ingratiate themselves to you. Common sense would dictate that there's going to be some level of uh, even unconscious uh, quid pro quo that will uh, seep into the conversation. So because we know that people can behave that way, you keep a arm's length distance away. That's the checks and balances that we've had. And the irony is that we've never thought that we would ever be in a situation where we'd be calling into the question about financial self-dealing of our independent elected yeah. because we never thought it would get to that point. So just let me, can I maybe try to find a... Uh, goddamn Hillary Clinton. Thank God we didn't get yeah. like that crook. <laughs> Jesus. Um, a silver lining here, and I never thought I'd be in that position. But uh, so there have been a lot more congressmen and senators than there have been presidents. So I, I guess my thought is, well, those laws and those rules came into play a lot quicker because there were so many more people to violate them or to bring them up. Like, is it is it possible that we'll see Donald Trump be the person that we go, oh, we really need to put in these addendums into laws and rules for the president as well? Just no, see, Republicans no? are never going to do that. Damn it. But if, if I can, I mean, I didn't mean to shut you off so quickly, but I, at least for another year, I don't see that happening. But Sim every day goes after bad guys, puts them in jail for a long time, in prison, as well he should. And nobody's ever done it better 
and more objectively and without any political consideration. But the same day... You put Democrats in jail, Sim? I'll put anybody who violates the law <laughs> okay. in jail. I would just want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but we're not safe, Phil. <laughs> the exact same day that Mr. Trump pled guilty, or whatever you do in a civil matter, to cheating yeah. thousands of hapless college students. Trump University. With Trump University, the headlines were all grabbed... By some stupid comment, as only Democrats can do to step on the message about a Broadway show. Hamilton, yeah. And so all of the attention, all of the focus, which should have been on the fact that the incoming president of the United States went to children, youngsters, college students, many of the minorities, pretended to sell them a bill of goods, had them go, many of them, into trem- Dramatic debt for a generation so that he could make a quick buck on them with his phony school. And guess what? That's not a sin. And to prove he's guilty, this guy who says, I never settle lawsuits, wrote a $24, $25 million check. Of course he was guilty. This, to me, is the most heinous of crimes because it... It infiltrates people that don't play well in the system, don't understand the system a lot of times, and the marketing on on these uh, independent colleges, mm-hmm. these factories, is such that they grab people, give them vision, and then have them sign up for these government loans in perpetuity. They are vicious characters. And I can't believe that America isn't talking about that so, instead of... So, so, that's, so, all, so, that's all very well and good, Jim. But you have not looked too deeply, apparently, into the fact that from the stage, that Hamilton actor said five or six lines to the incoming vice president uh, and asked him for the respect for minorities. So you didn't look too deeply into that, apparently. Apparently not. <laughs> well, well, you know, but I think, I think, Jim, you've touched upon something that uh, maybe this is a natural segue to this. Oh, man. So, look, let me start by you saying this. really upsetting. Uh, but let me start with this way. Because I think, in, in, in look, in, in all fairness, uh, I've always said it this way. Neither a Democrat or a Republican, nobody has a monopoly on either brilliance nor stupidity. We're human beings and we're fallible uh, creatures. And so everybody is capable for, of a certain level of error. So here's my question. The more interesting question to me now becomes, okay, forget Trump with his unique issues that he's talking about. What does it say about us as a country? What does it say about us as a culture? What does it say about us as a group of citizens that we have gotten our civic compass so far eroded that where these vacuous headlines become more titillating in terms of substantive debate, which really is a commentary on what the last election was. There was no discussion of substantive issues. And one thing, whether whether Trump exploited that weakness or not, Trump exploited what was presented before him, and he did it wonderfully well. But it is a commentary on us as a citizenry to say that we have abdicated our responsibility and let this vacuous information be substituted as substantive debate. And that really is more frightening. 
Okay, the bottom line is we will survive in one fashion or another as a country. The question is, what are the skeletal remains of us? What is the residue that will be left over as we go through this experience of what we call this last election where we have eroded our citizenship to such a minimum base level of conversation. Do you spend much time uh, or any time at all on Facebook? Uh, I, I spend a little bit of time on Facebook. Do you, uh, and, uh, and I comment on it. I, I don't know anything about Facebook. Uh, Facebook. Is that a new kid the tool that the kids are playing around with? I don't. With you know, I uh, I mean, I think that's... I, I, I'm serious about yeah. this. I think that is in part an answer to your question, uh, how that how things get eroded. Uh, it's a, it, it is a trivial waste of time. Uh, and and sucks people down a rabbit hole. Yes and no. Uh, and I, I just, uh, you know. There was a study that was done, which is fascinating about Facebook this way. Historically, when we talk about the dissemination of information, it's been hierarchical. It goes from top down. Uh, what, at least in other democracy, what the role Facebook or social media has played is that it's democratized. Uh, information. So nobody has a monopoly on it. Now, it comes with its own risk. And the risk is, in the democratization of information, it also opens the door for people to put whatever narrative that's out there. It doesn't mean that you have to abdicate your thinking in the process. So, I look, I write a lot on Facebook, but I put out what I think is sometimes very thoughtful or something questioning. But I've never, you know, Brian Schott on uh, Utah Policy once asked me, he goes, you know, you write all this cerebral, heady stuff. Why do you write it? I go, because because I don't in, uh, insult the intelligence of the people that I'm trying to have a conversation with. And so you don't abdicate your own personal filter to say, hey, what is the truth out there? How am I ver- validating this? Now, if you abdicate and say anything that goes on social media is the truth and you're seduced by that, then shame on us. That's a, an individual uh, 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 breakdown structurally. But I think the the value when we think about Morocco, when we talk about the middle uh, the the Middle Eastern yeah. Spring, yeah. it was the uh, it was the uh, why do these dictatorships fear uh, that? Because it is the democratization of information. Now, how we manipulate that information speaks to us as individuals and each culture. But I don't think you can blame it on one particular medium uh, to do that. Um, that's the challenge that we have. People could make the same argument with newspapers, if you think about it. Uh, if people could say, well... And did and have. Yeah, and, and yeah they, they did. And, and, with, and, right. with radio, I, with television, I with just, newspapers, just, with the Internet, with Facebook, I just, I just with find Twitter. people relying on the Twitter for their news. Facebook for their news. So that really speaks to more That's to the, the uh, to the sort of the uh, the compartmentalized consumption of information. Look, if you want to ask, uh, look, here's my little pet peeve. My pet peeve is is that uh, look, my family emigrated here because we believed in certain ideals, not because we were going to be Democrats or Republicans. Okay, my father came here because he believed in the American ideal and and opportunity and access uh, to representative government that we had. Those were the ideals that we had. Now, you know, we are really experiencing a postmodern, post-reality election where the consumption of information has become vacuous. We have stopped teaching our people what it means to be a citizen. We don't teach people civics anymore. They don't understand what their role and responsibility as citizens really is in this country. What is the, let me ask you a more fundamental question. We've been engaged in wars overseas. Majority, 90, probably 8% of the people in this country have never 
personally felt the pain of what it means to be engaged in wars across the, uh, the country. We have removed our relationship to our citizenship, and these are the consequences of removing your civic responsibility. Fighting, fighting war is a profession. Yeah. Fighting war has become a profession. What does it mean to be a citizen anymore? I, I don't, we, don't require, we don't require people to do anything for citizenship, do we? Our... We, we don't... Rec- some countries require their, uh, so for example, their citizens to vote. The legislature, we passed a bill last year. We got really upset when we saw that Utah school children rate lower, considerably lower, in the last three or four in their civics in knowledge. And that's, that's included in the United States, which has been dumbing down. So we're dumbing down from the big national dumb down. Mm-hmm. So our legislators, in their passion to do something about this, my good friend Senator Stevenson said, you know, what we need to do is we need to give kids a test. So they came up with a brand new test, and they said, this is really going to be an important test because unlike any other test, if you don't pass this test, you don't graduate, and we're going to hold that up. So now every kid that graduates from high school in Utah, at least from a public school, has to pass this test. It says, how many Supreme Court justices are there? What is the name of your representative? Hang on, Bill. Let's go through. Who's the name of your representative? Judge Quiz Bill so, on his citizenship, Jim. When you go talk to the kids, of course, what happened as a result of that was n- is certainly not going to be the intended consequence. If you want to see what a bunch of old people who haven't been in a classroom in 40 or 50 years think will motivate kids to learn more about civics, then you've got the right solution. And I, I said, Howard, rip that up. Take the millions of dollars it's going to cost to administer and keep track of it, not to mention all the kids who are going to fail, who've come along so far, and they've got their particularly first-generation kids, and English is a second language, and now they just can't get through this one final test. I said, give me that money. Let's bring Hamilton to schools. Let's get them fired up. Let's get them excited about what it is. Let's get the arts into play, which we've taken out. That's how you motivate children. It's how's not that, by a bunch of people passing that, a test. How's it, that going for you now, Jim? <laughs> Are they still behind the Hamilton thing? It's no, a, it's well, a, look, whatever goodwill look, there was with look, Hamilton. Look, but yeah, of course, the legislature uh, decided on the so, test so, and not money for the so, arts. So, for example, here's my modest proposal. My modest proposal is that every person who comes out, and, uh, first of all, I agree that we should be teaching civics at the grade school level, at you the junior to. high school I level, had to take at, at the high school level, what it means to have our citizenship, what is our constitution is. We, I think those are basic fundamental grammars of democracy that you have to, the alphabet and grammar of democracy. The second thing we need to do is we need to internalize that experience. So here's my modest proposal. I think that every person, whether at the age of 16 or 18 or whatever, they should either do two years of service in the military or two years equivalent of the equivalent of uh, domestic peace corps. Mm-hmm. If, you're, if you don't want to go into the military, where you're giving something of yourself as a part of right and ritual of owning your democracy and your citizenship. So you can then, uh, we can say that if you go two years in the military, 
Secretary or two years in the domestic version of Peace Corps where we're working with underprivileged communities and doing something substantive good that you get credit for your community college or college uh, uh, bonuses. And now people feel vested. They understand why they're doing it, what their experience was. They get to see somebody different than them. They see somebody who looks differently, who may be in a different economic situation, different sociological situation, but then you are a part of the solution of helping build a better democracy. And once you internalize that, then you take your ownership, citizenship very seriously. And I, I think I, I think you respect that in, in terms of military service or in community service, but it is service in behest uh, and behalf of your country yeah. as the rite of passage of citizenship. Here, here. I agree. Let's uh, let's. I want to go to local politics. Uh, we've gotten philosophical about Nashville. I want to ask one more question about uh, the Trump administration. I want to ask about Mitt Romney. So, uh, you you probably you you both have probably met him. I don't know how well you know him. A little bit, Jim. Do you know him? It's on speed dial here. <laughs> I mean, do you I know mean, him I, a little I've, bit? I mean, I've had two I, conversations yeah. with him. So yeah. that's I, him. I, I I think I think that Mr. Romney is a very thoughtful, intelligent person. Uh, I think he demonstrated incredible courage when he came out and spoke against what he thought to be a flawed candidate. Uh, I, I thought he demonstrated some great courage, and I think that's the courage and leadership that people needed to step up and to push the. Uh, the political dialogue in the right direction. So, so where does that leave it? Okay, though? that's what I yeah. want to ask about. Now, so that's, you've got two uh, arguments. Yeah. So, so this is what I want to ask about. So so he goes to meet with Donald Trump after the election and, and uh, is reportedly uh, uh, being considered for Secretary of State. Right. And, and if he accepted that position were it to be offered, does this make Mitt Romney a hypocrite? Or, or does this make Mitt Romney a kind of a guy who says to himself... I really still don't like this man much, but it is time for thoughtful people of good character to try and help from within. I, and do and and do we think that that's a good thing? I, I would I would think the latter because look here's the thing, we can we can ta- we can take one or two approaches. One is to say that the Trump candidacy is so flawed that every one of us should do everything in our power to not assist, and I think that it would be a wrong approach. Uh, I think the American uh, dream really is to build a better society, and I think that everybody who can contribute to the success of making sure that we don't go down that moral slippery slope, I think has a responsibility as a citizen to contribute their very best to turn that tide. And so in that sense, I, I guess I'm, I'm an optimist, and I would think that that would be something that would uh, anybody who is competent and capable should step up and do what they can to assist that success. I mean, if, uh, Jim, don't you think if, 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 if uh, uh, now, Donald I- Trump said... Uh, uh, I, I want Sim Gill to be my attorney general. Wouldn't you say, go do it, Sim? Go. go. First of all, let's just make sure that will never happen. Well, <laughs> Second of all, I, thank you I, for the kind words. I work. think that Democrats ought to give the incoming Trump administration the same passionate support that they gave to Barack Obama over the last eight years. I think that would be helpful. Now, is anything to be gained by that? There's something to be said here that people tiptoe around. Yes, wouldn't it be wonderful if Mitt had the courage to go to Washington and kind of stand up for values and truth and whatever? Or is it just a guy of 
blinding ambition That's what that I wonder. sees yeah. the uh, that whatever circumstance to be the Secretary of State That's of the right. United States of America so, and just it's too much to turn down. I don't know which it is, it, and maybe it's a maybe it's a combination. It, it, it is. Of them. I, I think I think it, it, it. You know, look. I think we have to. Uh, let me put it this way. I guess I'm a Democrat because I am an optimist when it comes to human nature. And what I believe in is that that good people do good things if given the opportunity. And since neither brilliance nor stupidity is the monopoly of any one side, I think that there are people who care about this country that transcends any party loyalty. And I think all of us have an opportunity. Let me, let me give, it to you, give you an example. You know, let's suppose I have a neighbor and he doesn't mind his kid the way that he's supposed to. And I go to my neighbor and I say, hey, bud, you, you got to pay attention to your five-year-old because he keeps walking out in the street. Okay. And all right. So I've done my civic duty and I've warned the, the person. Right. And then, lo and behold, the next day, the kid is wandering out into the street and there's a, a, a you know, a semi truck coming down the, the, the road. I don't simply say, well, you know what? It's his responsibility. I warned him. He's a bad parent. All of us would jump up out of our front porch, go down and grab that kid and pull him back because that's the right thing to do. And I believe in the optimism of people doing the right thing. Now, having said that, that doesn't mean we're blind to what their politics are. We're blind to what their record is. We're blind to what they've said or we're blind to the rhetoric. But we want to demand the best. And if anybody can help us be a better country, then that's it. Look, I didn't vote for Mr. Trump, but I'm still an American citizen. And for the next four years, he's going to be my president, and, uh, and whether I like it or not. And I have respect for that institution. Uh, and the same way, and you're right, Jim, they, they didn't uh, treat Mr. Obama the way they sh- uh, that we wish they would have treated him. And they were, uh, they were uh, you know, obstructionists. But that's the difference between our political ideology and their political ideology. But at the end of the day, we want them to treat everybody the, the best way so we can be successful. And, and, uh, and, and I tend to be guardedly optimistic. Jim? Okay, I, I, I just Googled <laughs> this now. This is, this is Mitt Romney in all sobriety. Quote, I believe with my heart and soul that we face another time of choosing. <clears throat> His domestic policy, speaking of Trump, would lead to recession. His foreign policies would make America and the world less safe. He has neither the temperament nor the judgment to be president. And his personal qualities would mean that America would cease to be the shining city on the hill. All right. May, you want to go? There's one other interesting play here. Because traditionally, the State Department and the National Security Advisor are at odds. The State Department is out at Foggy Bottom, which is quite a ways from the White House, whereas the National Security Advisor is right there next to the president, and they don't get along. So you look for people that are compatible. Well, Trump has hired as his National Security Advisor a man more volatile than Donald Trump. And he's going to be the guy whispering at 3 a.m. what the president ought to do. Who knows what's going to happen? So for Mitt Romney to march in there and take that kind of um, Secretary Rogers and Henry Kissinger going back to the Nixon time would be, I would have to think very carefully about it because he could just be left out on a limb where he takes all the grief of a loony Trump administration with an inability to actually set the policy. And I'm sure he's totally aware of that. And look, you know what? I hope he takes it and I, I... you're right. On a on a on a broad level, it's better to have 
a sane person than, um, uh, 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 than somebody uh, 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 else. But I mean, specific. Maybe, I mean, maybe he thinks I've I've got to be the one to go around the world and put out some of these fires that no. are going to be started. But I mean, That's so right. we have Governor Mitt Romney, who was kind of for uh, was fairly progressive and liberal, and then we have presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who turned on all of that, and then we have regular guy Mitt Romney again, who's really standing up and going for it. And I feel like uh, when when it comes down to actually doing it he is not he doesn't have the so, backbone so, to stand up to so bullies. what you've really identified is the schizophrenia of american politics yeah, maybe yeah. and yeah, and you know right. and and and, uh, and therein lies the most interesting part of this whole uh, conversation uh, you know uh, who we are and what we have devolved our process so, I, to so i it's so awful you know it's uh, let's talk local politics, and I mean it's yeah. so awful, you know. I mean Gary Herbert is a nice guy, and he and he does a lot of things that I I kind of like, and then but then he just does these jerky political things that take money from Planned Parenthood and try not to say that it's not a political move. Well, it is a political move, you know. He just does. You know. Anyway, so I um, I sat down with a guy that Jim DeBacchus actually introduced me to, Spencer Stokes. And uh, we sat right at this table and talked for a long time about politics. And my gosh, gosh he's a great guy. He uh, is. He's a, a, a Republican political operative, uh, uh, advisor. Uh, he's, Jesus about as nice a guy as you can be. In a lot of ways, it seems to me to be a really liberal guy. Funny. <laughs> Very funny, warm, uh, smart as a whip. And... Um, and I asked him, uh, so, so what, do, what do the Democrats have to do, in your opinion, in Utah? How, they, how do they get people elected? How do they do it? Can they do it? And he said, uh, yeah, they can. It's, it's just they, they've just got to find the right candidates that, that they haven't been able to find yet. They, they, just, they put up people like, you know, I mean, God, God love her, but... Is somebody really going to vote for Misty Case? No. You know, it's... uh, Well, you know, look, uh, I I have my own take on this. Uh, I think, uh, so let me be very blunt and honest. In Utah Democratic politics, if we're waiting for the Messiah to come and lift us all up to, and we're going to ascend into heaven together on the coattails (laughs) of a single Messiah, I think that's the wrong uh, way to look at it. You know, Wayne Howell and I talked about this a while back, and I think I've said this maybe to Jim. uh, Forgive me if I repeat myself. But waiting for a, a Messiah to lift us all out of our troubles is the wrong way to do it. Because after those select few who get ascended into heaven, there's a lot of people who are left behind with the reality of daily existence. So it's not going to be something uh, like that. It really is going to be about the message. And the question really goes back to fundamentals of the message. And that's what this last election was about. The last election was about, uh, with, and I, look, I'm a Democrat and, and I support, you know, supported my candidate, but we had a, 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 a blind spot. And the blind spot was you cannot have uh, blue-collar workers in Pennsylvania and walk up to them and say, you're part of a dying industry. When somebody has been diagnosed with cancer and they're dying, what they want to do is we want you to come up and say, hey, hey, we're going to get through this together. I know it's going to be a rough patch, and we've got to learn how to message our conversation back to the average citizens once again. The things that we talk about are relevant. They're relevant in terms of the working class. They're relevant in terms of single parents. They're relevant for people who want a better life in this country.
country. And we've got to learn how to connect on a personal level of that urgency and that message because it is the message that sustains you through the cold, dark nights, not just simply the well, Messiah. I think in a way that's what he's saying. He's not saying wait for, for a Messiah. He's saying you, you have to go out and find those people who can convey a message like that. Right. And okay. they have to be... They have to be, uh, he said. Ben McAdams is a, is a, is is somebody like that in the Democratic Party in Utah right now. You know, he's sure. he's, he's 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 a he's warm. He's smart. He's 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 got a certain amount of charm and friendliness. And the Democrats need more of those people. I, I, I think what this last election demonstrated is, if you think about it. Trump capitalized on the anti-establishmentarianism of both the right and the left. Okay, that's what he he did. He exploited that. And I think what that demonstrate is that there is a disconnect between majority of our citizens and the our political rhetoric. And so the question really becomes is how do we make that relevant conversation once again? And I think that's an important part of it. Uh, You know, I I don't know if there's a magic answer here, but, you know, I defer to my colleague, Jim, because he's thought about these issues and and I respect his judgment quite a bit. So, Jim, what do you think? Nothing to say. Hmm? I got nothing to say on this. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'll bet. Uh, okay. I'm not, just wrote I'm, down I'm some notes. Look, I, I, I'm just going to say this. If you take, and we've done this with focus group yeah. after focus group after focus group, take 20 or 14 or 9 Utah citizens and ask them, what do you think about Medicaid expansion? Yeah. What do you think about public lands? What do you think about it paying more for education in your neighborhood? What do you think about clean air? What do you think about any number of issues? Point by point by point by point, they agree, and not just marginally, but in the high 60s, 70s, sometimes 80% with exactly what the Utah Democrats are saying. Because the Republicans feed nothing but lip service, and then they go toward the interest of their very special lobbying interest friends, what flies in the face of what the normal citizens of the state want. So what we have to do is exactly what Sim said. And I started an organization called Utah Progressives. It's not for everybody, but its job is to talk about the many horrible, miserable conflicts of interest and messes in the state that the governor says, oh, look over here. And he, you pick up a rock in anywhere in state government and you see 30 years of termites and rot and corruption and lobbyists. That whole idea of really helping the people has been lost. And Democrats are just fuming in the corner because they see all this and they recognize it. But they haven't been able to get somehow their message out. There's this tidal wave of Republican messaging about everything is great. You know, we do have the best managed state. We are creating jobs. There is no scandals. Everything is perfect here when it clearly isn't. And until Democrats can, A, figure out how to get that message, and second, have the guts to stand up and say, you know what, Gary Herbert, that's not true. Because Democrats, after 30 years of submission, are a bit Stockholm syndrome. And they, they are saying, well, you know, 
we're kind of, uh, as candidates, we're kind of like Republicans, except we want to make a few changes. And they are afraid, in my opinion, in a lot of places to stand up and say, LeVar Christensen, here's your record. Or, you know what, Sean Reyes, here's what you've really been doing. Because we are where we feel as though this is not a confrontative kind of culture and we dare not do it. But how are we ever going to break through and let people know, you know what, we're the good guys here unless we open our mouth and unless we speak the truth. I agree with you. I think we have to connect. And I think Jim is so right that when it comes down to really the bread and butter issues that uh, in terms of representative government on the individual level. And that's why I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to believe in the retail politics because we have to talk to people. This is one of the reasons I love my job uh, as, a, as a county district attorney because I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're secular or religious. If you're a victim of a crime, my job as a public servant is to come and serve you and have a responsive institution that meets your needs because crime uh, uh, defendants don't pick their victims based on their party affiliation. They pick them because they're easy targets and because they're trying to exploit human agency and human suffering. So our job is to go alleviate that suffering and connect to them on an institutional level of serving our community. We've lost the notion of what the word public service means. And Jim is right. You cannot say and pontificate that we believe in our children as the future when we refuse to invest in their education. My God, we used to be better than Mississippi. We're, I think, now worse than Mississippi, okay, in education investment. That's the reality that we should be asking our folks. We should, you know, look, the average American, what they want, they don't have any desire to be multimillionaires. What they want is a warm home. They want to be somebody who works 56 60 hours a week, be able to go down, pick up their kid, walk them to the corner grocery store, buy them a can of soda, to be able to take a vacation once in a while, not go bankrupt when their fam- one of their family members gets sick, and to be able to pass on some hopefulness of future social mobility and economic mobility to their children. No parent wants to ever look their f- a child in the face and say, you know what, your life is going to be more miserable than mine. And those are the things that we need to connect to them and give voice to those average citizens in the state of Utah. And the people who are doing that are Democrats. And Jim is right. How do we get that message across? We need to connect on that retail politics well, of it. How, so the, but how you get that message across is, is find candidates who are willing to stand up and look those other politicians and the look, Republicans look in the Look at Suzanne eye. Harrison. Did yep. you meet Suzanne during the I campaign? Did. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I did. Well, I met her on, on, on the TV show, I think. You have LeVar Christensen, who is arguably the most anti-gay legislator that there's ever been. She's the doctor, right? Yeah. So yeah. you so yeah. the incumbent LeVar Christensen, who I, you know, I, we get along. We work together. But yeah. the truth is the truth. He's anti-gay. He's very conservative. He's very paternalistic. And then you have... In this most conservative district, this might as well be Utah County. Draper out there. In, out in Draper. You have this woman who got uh, her undergraduate degree at Stanford, went to the U Medical School, did her postdoctoral stuff at Harvard, is the chief of anesthesiology yes. or uh, yeah, at, it, yeah. at, at Pioneer Valley Hospital, I believe, or in a, in a hospital, articulate three kids, Fabulous Relief Society president, 37, 38, who would change that legislative body. There's a, there's, I don't know how many of them there are in the House, like 75 of them, and they're everywhere. She really would change it because of the knowledge and the skill sets. She lost in this 
red, red, red district by three votes. Well, she they're gonna they'll they'll recanvass it. Yeah, I mean, she, she still could, could she win. Could win. But, 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 but I think that. But, but, but so. But I think that does speak, though. Here's the thing. It's close. Uh, because what did Suzanne do? Suzanne, you know, I talked to Suzanne, and I remember talking to her about her campaign and so forth. Suzanne want, went out and knocked on every door. She spoke to every person. She she fought off sometimes uh, campaign challenges, which may mean you know, which were maybe a little uh, one sided. But she she spoke the truth to power. She spoke with folks. She connected with. Them. She listened to them and she worked her tail off. And you know, and here is a here is a top candidate who came within striking, striking distance of just a, a chance of uh, uh, turning upset of the year, if you will. And but that speaks to her power as a candidate who was willing to work. And just there is no more. substitute. How do we get those candidates? That's the point. So, so, if she so, can win, what about the West Side so, of Salt so, Lake? So How do thing. we find them there? I, I think what, it goes back to the hard work that's necessary. And look. Uh, no disrespect to my Democratic colleagues and 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 the party infrastructure. There isn't a Democratic Party infrastructure, so I'll say it. Okay, okay, uh, and and I'll probably be punished for saying it. But you know what it comes down to? It comes down to hard work. It it comes down to because to for Suzanne, it came down to an issue and a position that Lavar took with victims, and it resonated with her. It moved her, and she became passionate about it. And she went out and she sacrificed her family she time. Angry. She got angry. She got involved, and she. Got Got invested, and and there is no party infrastructure to support somebody like that. It, it relies too much on individuals. So if we want to make a difference, the party infrastructure needs to recognize it has a role to play, and it's got to work just as hard as the candidates that they want to have come forward she, and work as she hard. She could as have well. she could have won if there had been more of a party infrastructure there to help it, her win. Partly, but I don't know that that's ever going to happen. Parties, I think, are diminishing in their influence. PACs and mm-hmm. and money groups and others are increasing uh, it comes down to how do some smart people it, whether they're party members or yeah, activists right. or anybody right. how do we go you how need, do we find the Suzanne need, Harrisons that are in West Valley and in districts where Democrats should be winning, winning now if if we find those candidates recruit them and they got to work their butt that's off because right. some right. of them didn't work that's right they didn't work you they, need a not party. Gonna win. you need a party to find, to recruit them well, then we're in trouble. I think you need a party to recruit well, them to go to to go to college, to go to university campuses, or to go well, go, go to but, civic but, centers but, but, on the west side. Let me let me let me backtrack from that. There, uh, there. Here's if you want to know what this this election taught us. It taught us that we are let, let, let's be a little cautious about that because we became there's a fascinating book I forgot the name of the author I'm reading it just started reading it it talked about how the professionalization mm. of our government and the credentialing of our government is the big disconnect between our average citizens. So it's not about finding the Harvard graduate, okay? It's about finding the genuine article. It's about finding the person who is compassionate and connected to their community and has some relevance to it. Because the next great leader is may not be coming out of a Harvard graduate school because when you cut down to local politics, they, be, they break down by neighborhood and they become 
uh, issues and they need to have a form of support. And uh, what, what I'm not saying is I'm not suggesting that somehow the party is going to come down and give you this grand infrastructure and all you have to do is show up and you're going to be voted in. What I'm suggesting is that party needs to recognize and recruit like you said, but we need to start talking about relevance just the way Jim talked about. If there's all these percentage of citizens who are out there whose voices are not being heard, then you need to sit down and meet with them and work your tail off. Every time I run for office, I know that I'm the underdog. I know that I have to work twice as hard. And maybe that's part of the experience of me being a minority and the way I was raised by my father. Just gonna say but, you that. Know, yeah. but, but it is about the hard work. To me, being a public servant is not something that I do because I have nothing else to do. It's integrated. It's integral to me in wanting to be a part of the community that uh, of other citizens and, uh, that I want to serve. It has to have that kind of urgency, and we have lost that sense of urgency. Well, we find those people, and we've lost that authenticity. Peter Tamala, for example, yeah. came out of nowhere. Yeah, nowhere. R- went to West Valley. And spent seven months knocking on doors, getting money, going after yeah. work. I'm saying yes. that it is too important a responsibility to be left to a party to try to fill 75 house seats and another 10 or 15 and statewide and city council. Every single Democrat has to be looking and say a lot of times and say, look, you know what? You need to run. That's it right. needs That's to right. not be that- assigned out. We need every damn Democrat <laughs> to either think about running themselves or help recruit or get a hold oh, of Sim and I oh, and we will help recruit because sh- all the difference and, comes and you, and from you, the right candidate. And you have to show up. You cannot abdicate your responsibility as a citizen because somebody else is going to vote that person in. Oh, you you've got to vote. You've got to vote. You've got to get involved. You've got to, you've got to be there. And you're right. You know, it, you know, we have incredible people out there, but we have the, the conversation and the urgency has to become relevant again. Can I Where ask do you, you live, Bill? Uh, I live in your district. <laughs> well, then I really need to be recruiting you. <laughs> I can't. Uh, I, I don't think I would. Uh, there, there's too much. I don't think people would vote for me. But I, think, uh, but I think this election has demonstrated. Look, if there is a silver lining in this election, it has, I, think, I think it has at least told people that you can no longer be bystanders to democracy anymore. And I think, I think if there is a silver lining here that everybody has a role to play, and those people who are sitting there who were protest voters, or they were going to do this or whatever. Well, guess what? This is the consequence of you either participating or willing to, or not participating in the democratic process. And you cannot, and I will not let anybody abdicate that responsibility on. We all have to take ownership of the result of this election. Uh, let me just, we got to kind of wrap it up here, but I want to just ask one more question about Suzanne Harrison. And then, I, and then I'd like you both to, if you would just, uh, just say how people can contact you. Uh, is she, uh, have you spoken to her since? Uh, yeah, I spoke to her. Does, not, she, does she have the, now, I mean, how hard this was, does she have any fire left? Sim, Could she do I, it what again? I, what I want to suggest to Sim and, and some other Democrats, and, and maybe it would be the party or, or not, but sometime in January, we have a, a lunch with with the five or six candidates that came within two or three percent and worked their guts out and did the rest and honor them and and 
secretly sabotage their plans so that we can make sure that they they run yeah. again. There I mean, were I, some I, close I, races. Yeah, re- recruiting doesn't occur the day before the the the, the, the sign up sheet is due. It occurs a couple of years before. When I was the, party chair, that's damn well when it's hard, and I'm not and I'm not throwing rocks at the no, state party, but I'm saying I'm they not. don't have the infrastructure. We need every. You want to fight Trump? You can talk about the electoral college changing till the cows come home or the Senate won't do this or having a constitutional convention or all this screwball stuff. You really want to change Trump? Find candidates in your neighborhood to run for legislative districts. That would scare the Republicans. That would change the parameters of the state more than all the rallies and petition drives and Facebook stuff you can imagine. Because if we get Suzanne Harrison's and Peter Tamales and Karen Kwan's and Elizabeth Waits, who all were winners because they were great candidates right. and because they were recruited, and then and we Nikki support Kennard. them, we're going to win. And Nikki Kennard came out of nowhere yeah. and did a great job, right? Yeah, yeah, and and so, so I think, look, it, it really comes down to uh, it just ha- creating that sense of urgency. Uh, Tip O'Neill said all politics is local, and you cannot get – look, every – uh, every city, county, council, county, whatever, local PTA board, education board, you need to get out there. Before it becomes a national dialogue, it starts as a dialogue at the local level. So uh, uh, 801-230-1209 is my cell. If you want to call me, call me, and uh, I'll be happy to do, uh, uh, talk to you uh, and have any conversation. I, I take my job seriously as a public servant. Everybody has my number. If you want to meet with me, talk, whatever. You're Come the down. county attorney, and you give out your number like that to him? Public servant. Public servant. And uh, you what's can your, get, you just your cell number, Jim. Just give My your cell number is 801-815-3533. Uh, Senator Jim DeBacchus on Facebook. Yeah, easy to find these guys. Message me on Facebook. I, I take a lot so more messages on Facebook all the time. Uh, and I, I would just suggest one other thing. Gary Herbert's dem- number is cell. <laughs> it's a, you, uh, you can just go to uh, utah.gov. Uh, what is the what is the legislative website? Utah.le.gov. Le.gov. Utah.le.gov. And all the legislators' phone numbers are there, and they answer their phones. Most of them, yeah. 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 Uh, and I would just have one other uh, recommendation for the Utah Democrats: see if you can get Spencer Cox to change parties. <laughs> you yeah, might, because he's in a sure loser of a party now. <laughs> well, but I mean, he, but just he he has a good conscience, I think, and a good heart. He might. He might change, and I think people would vote for him and elect him as a Can't Democrat. Can you imagine one day where you have the two baby-face 40-year-olds going at each other mm-hmm. with Cox and McAdams, and then they both go really negative? Uh, I think they're good friends. Or maybe actually. what we do is maybe we say that uh, at the state level, at the national level, party affiliation matters. At the local level, representing your community and your neighborhoods is the urgency and uh, and if we want to serve our uh, civic society, maybe we should have no parties whatsoever when it comes to local uh, elections. When you look at places, good. when and, and that's one thing. The other thing is, let's be honest about.
about this. In a country that gerrymanders the way it man- gerrymanders, you cannot have an honest political conversation. In a country which uh, does voter suppression and makes it difficult for citizens to vote, you cannot have an honest con- uh, uh, conversation. So let's not be delusional with the fact that there are active forces that want to retain themselves and stay in power because as a citizen, the last thing they want you to do is to be empowered as a citizen and get out and vote. And if that is what your party is doing, then you know what? You as a citizen have a moral and ethical obligation to say this is not the America that our parents came here for. This is not the America that good American citizens have died for. This is not an America that we have suffered to emancipate people so they can get out and vote. Anybody who suppresses voters' uh, turnout, uh, it does everything un-American that we believe in. And if that's your party, then you should be asking why do you belong to that group because they do not represent you in the most fundamental way. and tell your county commissioners, wherever they are, sometimes voter suppression is accidental right. to damn well pay. Look, if you've got 350 voting places in a county and you got a new system, you might want to say, okay, let's cut it down by 100. So you don't cut it from 350 yeah. down to so, 37 and get a and get a 3 hour wait. So I I'm just saying next time the county council meets and says how much money should we put into county elections? Let's go this way. Let's spend the extra money and have people sitting around at a bunch of polling stations just, just to be rather sure. than have three and a half hour lines and countless people walking away. So here's here's my thing. Since uh, uh, we all believe in tax cuts, here's a tax cut that I will support that you give a uh, sort of a earned income credit tax equivalent to everybody who goes out and votes. Okay? And uh, so you have to be a citizen. You have to file, obviously, a tax return so everybody's paying their taxes, and it's not about illegal voter issues, but everybody who goes out and votes gets an incentive to take $100 off their tax liability, and then you demonstrate your, uh, and, sure. and, and it's going to stimulate the economy. This is about as fundamentally trickle down as you can get. So, uh, you know. And 150 uh, if you uh, vote for oh, a Democrat. <laughs> oh, no, you said that. I would never say that already. <laughs> All right. Thanks, you guys. Thank uh, you. Uh, Sim Gill, uh, Salt Lake County District Attorney, Jim DeBacchus, uh, State Senator Jim DeBacchus, thank you both for being here. Thanks, always a, always th- a pleasure. Uh, thanks to 50 West for uh, water and french fries and a table. Thanks to Dylan for writing levels and producing the show. You're welcome. I'm Bill Allred. <laughs> and remember, when you're pouring the drinks, always make mine a double. Yeah, never more true than after this. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>